0: This morning, uh, we come to perhaps what is uh, the greatest of all of God's attributes, if you can put it that way, and that is the holiness of God, the holiness of God. And if you would turn in the scripture to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, let's hear now the word of God. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. and your sin atoned for. May God bless this reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we turn to this great passage of scripture, this great vision of a great prophet, this great revelation of your majesty and your holiness, we pray that your spirit might open our eyes. And though we may not have The vision ourselves, may its truth penetrate deep to our hearts, and may it change us in the way that it changed Isaiah. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I have to confess that it is very intimidating to speak on the holiness of God. Not only is it one of the most lofty subjects in all of theology, but I am well aware that men far more able than me have written books and preached messages, powerful messages on the holiness of God. And so I would commend to you R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, which is a modern classic, and it's in our library. And uh, the messages in which he preached... uh, uh, from which he, uh, this book is taken, which are most most of them are posted on the internet. So I feel a little bit this morning like a soloist in the local church choir who's been asked to sing some great anthem that has this soaring finish. You know, maybe um, I'll date myself, but uh, "God and God Alone," which 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 we're used to hearing Steve Green belt out, you know, and then you're just you know, you're the second string soloist in the choir and you're asked to sing that in front of the congregation. Well, everybody knows how it's supposed to sound. But the holiness of God is a critical doctrine in Scripture. And so I pray that you will bear with me as I do my best to sing this great anthem with whatever talent and ability and uh, strength that God gives me. As I thought about a title for this message, one idea I had was upgrading your view of God. Because that's really what an understanding of the holiness of God will do. It will upgrade your vision of God. You know, we go through life and we, we think of God as... Uh, our friend. We think of God as the one who hears our prayers. We think of God as the one we go to when when we're in distress. But the holiness of God will dramatically change your concept of God. And so I thought this title might work, and so I Googled it, God Upgrade, Upgrade God. And, and I found out that there was a, a Reform rabbi uh, named Jamie Corngold, who last month published a book called The God Upgrade. Um, I've printed a little bit of uh, an excerpt from that in the bulletin, but I, I kind of edited it because I was afraid that if I wrote, if I put what she had really said, It would be so offensive, somebody would have walked out and they never would have heard what I had to say. So let me, with that preface, read from what Rabbi Korngold says is the God upgrade that we need. When the world was flat, God had it easy. God would just wake up before sunrise, put a pot of coffee on to brew, and then get the sun started rising through the sky. Next, he would take down the moon and stars and tuck them away until he needed them again the next night. God would then pour a nice big mug of coffee. God would sit down in his favorite celestial easy chair and read the newspaper. He needed to keep up on all the goings on down on earth, but back when the world was flat, there were not so many people, so it didn't take very long. skip on down but when Magellan proved that the earth was spherical by sailing around it all sorts of things began to fell apart fell apart between us and God soon after that discovery Galileo came along to tell us that the earth was not the center of the universe now God was no longer in charge of getting the sun up into the sky because the earth's eastward rotation took on responsibility for the sunrise and sunset Soon afterward, on the heels of that cosmic disruption, Darwin declared that we were descended from apes, not created on day six. Then, before you could say monkey see, monkey do, Freud deduced that human behavior was simply an unconscious manifestation of the subconscious mind. Before a person had time to ask, Mother, may I, all sorts of things that used to be the domain of God were outsourced to science. Soon, drought and the withering crops it caused were due to climactic fluctuation not sin strokes were due to blood clots not demons other illnesses were caused by microbes and genetic genetic mutation rather than by not fasting on Yom Kippur comets were not harbingers of God's wrath but rather dust and ice careening through the solar system ice storms were created by a layer of warm air being trapped between two layers of cold air rather than by forgetting to pray after meals The common cold was inflicted by touching infected shopping cart handles, but maybe that was always the case. Once science moved in, there was little left for God to do, so he packed up and moved south to Florida. There he bought a condo in Century Village, and now he spends his days playing golf and catching early bird specials. Science and technology have in many ways dethroned God as the creator and ruler of the universe. In our society, all has been replaced by rationalism. We look to science and technology rather than God to repair our lives and to mend our hearts. Prozac has replaced prayer. Medicine has replaced Meshebarak, the Jewish prayer for healing. Social networking has replaced synagogue communities, and search engines have replaced Talmudic inquiries. Disappointingly, technology and science have turned out to be false gods. And then she goes on to talk about uh, what she wants to offer is an upgrade. In this book, Rabbi Korngold says basically that God is not almighty, that God didn't create the world, that God didn't do the miracles of the Old Testament, that God is not involved in our lives, that God doesn't hear our prayers and God doesn't answer our prayers. And if we just come to understand this, then, then we're ready for the God upgrade, which is to basically go out in nature and commune with God. And that's what she calls an upgrade. Let me, give a, let me try to illustrate this. Um, when I was a boy, we, we had something we called television. And uh, in our house, we had uh, the state-of-the-art 23-inch, black-and-white television. It it, it sort of had a rounded screen to it, and uh, the reception was not always that great because you either had an antenna or you had rabbit ears. And we had no way of recording programs. There were no, you know, VCRs, which are now ancient history, no DVD players, Blu-ray players, certainly nothing you could download from the Internet, whatever that was um we just had the three networks nbc cbs abc eventually we had pbs i don't ever remember watching much on pbs because we didn't even have sesame street in those days and then we got a uhf channel which you couldn't get very often but but when you did there were reruns of old shows like the lone ranger and and uh, roy rogers and things like that old movies and, and that was television. Now, today, we've got, you know, 42-inch HD flat-screen TVs. I saw my first 3D TV a few weeks ago. I had resisted that. I thought, I do not ever want a 3D TV. And then I was in a store, and I put on the glasses, and I went, oh, wow. You know, for, you know, uh, an action movie or... Uh, you know, uh, a cartoon that would be pretty impressive. And and we hook these HD TVs into either cable or fiber optic or satellite TV, and we can uh, have hundreds of channels. And when we run out of channels, we can download things from the internet. Uh, we can get our Blu-rays from Netflix and there's just an endless array of programming. I wish it were better, but there is a lot of programming, and it's very impressive to watch on these TVs. Now, if someone came to you and they said, wow, that's an interesting TV you've got there, that HDTV hooked up to fiber optic, but let me tell you what, what you need is an upgrade. You need to upgrade to the kind of TV we had when I was a boy—23 <laughs> inches, black and white, three channels, fuzzy reception. You would know that that is not an upgrade. That's a downgrade. And I'm afraid that what Rabbi Corn—no, I know what Rabbi Korngold is offering is no upgrade. It may be an update. It's an attempt to update faith, and and a view of God with modern sensibilities, with modern secularism. But there is no way that you can call the God that she presents an upgrade over the God of the Bible. And so I think it's very interesting what J.I. Packer wrote, Some 38 years ago, Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit, the spirit that is that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. Churchmen who look to God, so to speak, through the wrong end of the telescope, so reducing him to pygmy proportions, cannot hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. And clear sighted people naturally want something better than this. The holiness of God. Is a message. For people. Who are looking for something more. Than a downsized. Pygmy sized God. The holiness of God is a doctrine for people who want. To believe what the Bible teaches. That God is not. Not. Less than we imagined. But instead God is far, far greater than we have yet to imagine. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, there are a great many passages in Scripture that talk about the holiness of God, and were we to try to cover all of them in even the most superficial way, we would be here for hours, and I don't think you would do that. So I've listed some that I would encourage you to look at. Exodus 33, when... Moses, who has been leading the people of God and has led them up out of bondage in Egypt through the plagues, through the Red Sea, and now he's going to lead them to the promised land, and he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God more or less says to him, Moses, you, you don't know what you're asking. No one can see my face and live. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by. And and you can see my back, but my face you cannot see. It's a great story. It's a great passage. Job 42, verses 1 through 6, when Job responds After all of his pain and all of his trials and all of his questions. And God speaks to him from a whirlwind and basically just says. Job, what do you really know? What do you really know about the world and and how it was created and and the great uh, features of the world and the animals that I've created? What do you really know about running the world? Job is humbled, and he says, you know, I'd I'd heard about you, but, but now I've seen you, and I repent, and I have nothing to say. I'm silent. Mark 4 talks about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And when he had said to the winds and the waves, Peace, be still. The disciples said, What sort of man is this? Who commands the wind and the waves and they obey him. Revelation 4 describes John's vision of God that he saw. Of God on the throne in heaven. But the most powerful picture, I believe, of God's holiness in scripture is found in this passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that is our text this morning. A few words about the context. Isaiah was a great prophet and he wrote uh, the longest of the uh, books in the Old Testament of the prophetic books. Now, unlike many other prophets, uh, Isaiah came from a good background, a noble background. He was an advisor to the kings of Judah. And one of those kings was King Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years. 52 years. And he was a pretty good king. You know, he was not David, but he was a pretty good king. And under his reign, uh, there was peace, there was prosperity, the, the fortifications were built up, the army was built up, the territory was extended and uh, he was a good king. Not perfect. He made some serious mistakes. But he was a good king. And here this, this, this King Isaiah and his, his, his reign has come to an end because we're told that this vision took place in the year that he died. Could have been right after he died. Could have been while he was on his deathbed. But in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah had this vision. There's really no person I could compare them to. The closest I could come to might be the relationship, uh, and it's not near as strong as the uh, to convey what what this was like for Isaiah and King Isaiah. Uh, but it would be kind of like Billy Graham and Ronald Reagan, you know, our our most a- admired preacher and one of our greatest and most admired presidents. Except that, at the time that Uzziah's reign came to an end, there were dark clouds on the horizon. Uh, it was just about uh, 30 years before the end of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was carried off uh, in, into uh, dispersed, the ten tribes were dispersed, and uh, there was the rise of Assyria and the the rise of Babylon, and Isaiah, perhaps partly with his own human wisdom and certainly by divine revelation, could see the day when Judah, too, uh, would be conquered and would be taken into exile. And so he was, I'm sure, very concerned about this. A great era, a golden era is coming to an end. There are dark clouds on the horizon. There are tough times ahead. Things in the future are beginning to look bleak. And it's in this context that Isaiah has this vision. Did he go into the temple to have this vision? I don't know. Maybe. But either way, it was a vision of God uh, that was revealed to him. And we read that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Let me say one other thing about the context. I think that a lot of us come to a crossroads similar to the crossroads in the moment in time that Isaiah faced. You know, you can rock along with sort of a small vision of God. A God who's sort of a superman that, that comes when you need him and conveniently goes away when you don't need him or want him around. Uh... Uh, a God who makes no real moral demands on you, Um, a God who's sort of a, a grandfatherly God or a generous uncle God. A lot of us can rock along in that sort of mindset, whether we would ever put it that way or not, I don't know, but until we hit some great crossroads in life, some challenge in life, something that totally overwhelms us and when you get to that challenge and that crossroad that's when you're going to decide to either downgrade your view of God like Rabbi Corngold, and say well I guess God doesn't really hear prayers God's not really personal God's really not involved in my life there's some meaning to him but it's beyond our ability to really seek him out You're either going to downgrade and and downsize your view of God at that moment, or you're going to upgrade your view of God. And you're going to say, you know, I I don't know all of God's purposes. I don't know his plans. I don't know what he's up to. I don't pretend to be able to understand it. But I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is in control. I know that God has a purpose and a plan. I know that God works all things together for good. You will either downsize your view of God or you will upgrade your view of God. And so this morning, I believe that if you ever begin to grasp the holiness of God, you will be overwhelmed with a sense of awe before him. You will be overwhelmed with a sense of awe before him. Isaiah writes, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign Lord. Not, not just King Isaiah, a good king with a, a good reign, many accomplishments. No, I saw the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords the sovereign God of the universe, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the train is symbolic of the majesty of God and the majesty of a a human king. And so when a a king uh, was uh, coronated, you know, the longer the train, the more, uh, the more glorious the outfits, the greater was his majesty. And here we read, the train of God's robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, who only appear in this passage of Scripture. I don't know why it is that whenever we portray angels, uh, whenever popular society portrays angels, uh, they're either... Beautiful women, uh, or their sweet little children. When the Scripture always portrays angels as uh, uh, almost terrifying to, to, to behold, they—they they are beings. They are beings who, are, who who live in the in in, in the presence of God. And uh, wherever an angel appears to someone, their immediate reaction is to be afraid. Uh, But these were the seraphim, and literally it means the burning ones. And they live in the presence of God, and and we, we read that they are above the throne, standing above the throne. And they have six wings. And with two of these wings they cover their face because even though they're not fallen creatures, even though they're not sinful like we are, they cannot look upon the glory of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God. And with two of their wings they cover their feet. Again, a gesture of respect, of humility, so that When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he said, Moses, put off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. And so they covered their feet in the presence of the holy God. And then with two, they flew and they call out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, it's very interesting, this cry, holy, 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 and I'm so glad that we sang the hymn that was inspired by it this morning. R.C. Sproul writes, Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth is full of his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Wherever you go, you see the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at this sight, at this point in his vision, Isaiah writes that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, the word woe does not mean, did not mean in Scripture what it has come to mean Today, in the very limited times that, that we even use it anymore. It's kind of an archaic term today. We tend to hear the word woe, and we think of something like, poor, poor, pitiful me. Woe is me. I've really had a bad string of, of, of luck here. Woe is me. But in the scripture, the word woe was a curse. And so if you read the preceding chapters of Isaiah, he's, he's, he's saying, woe to this person and that person, to woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And he just goes on and on like this. He's 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 calling curses upon them. He's calling down judgment upon them, which is exactly what Jesus did. There's a whole section where he calls on woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes and the the people who saw the miracles and heard his teaching and they rejected him. And he says it's going to be better for the people of Tyre and Sidon than it is for you. And so when Isaiah says, woe is me, he's not saying, poor me. He's calling a curse down upon himself in the presence of the holiness of God. He realizes that that he is lost, that he is undone, that he is without hope. And so if you ever begin to grasp the holiness of God, secondly, you will be struck by an awareness of your human weakness and sin. Now, there's some preachers and churches where you go every Sunday and there's a list of sins uh, that are held up before you. And you, uh, the, the point is to make you feel bad, to make you feel guilty. I'm not saying there's no place for that. There are things we ought to talk about. They're sins that ought to be condemned. But if you really want to understand our place before God, what you need to do is not just look at your sins, but you need to see the holiness of God. You see, holiness, first of all, refers to God's transcendent Majesty. The word in Hebrew is uh, from the word "cut" or to separate. God is 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 separated from us. He he is set apart from us. He is he is in a class by himself. He's beyond what we could ever imagine. And secondly, it refers to I think. His searching, penetrating, brilliant, perfect, moral righteousness and character. God is absolutely righteous. Absolutely perfect. And that's just a very revealing thing. To be in the presence of a holy God. We've been uh, for too long trying to figure out how to get a projection system in this church. Uh, I think it was built for that because we have a screen up there. But uh, we've never been able to do it. And it turns out it's a little more difficult than just getting a projector in a classroom. For one thing, you're talking about a room that's three or four times the size of a classroom even a big room. Most of the time in a classroom, you have to kind of turn the lights down so that you can see the image. We don't want to turn all the lights off in here. We want to leave most of them on. So, and you're talking about an image that's not six, eight feet across, but an image that's maybe 11 or 12 feet wide in a bright room in a big room. That's a pretty big challenge. And so We've been talking with some contractors about this and one of them wrote me this note and I think it illustrates this point. Um, he writes average movie theater screens produce uh, 16 foot lamberts of light in a really dark controlled room 16foot lamberts of light. A church requires something like 35 to 45 45 foot Lamberts. Uh, Uh, to be uh, visible if the light is controlled. Uh, A TV like you have at home produces 50-foot lamberts of light. In a well-lit room, you would need 50 to 70-foot lamberts uh, coming off of the projection screen. On a rainy day, uh, there might be 100-foot lamberts of ambient light coming into the room from the windows. On a cloudy day, not raining but just cloudy, there might be 150 to 300-foot lamberts of ambient light. So we're trying to get a projector that will project something above 50-foot lamberts of light. I hope I haven't totally lost you on this, but here's the point. Just, just for comparison, he says, what if you were to try to project something outdoors in direct sunlight? How much light would you have to have? And he says, an outdoor show under direct sunlight. He says, are you kidding? It would require something like 10,000 foot lamberts of light. You see, that's the situation we are within the ho- when we talk about the holiness of god we can we can look at this person and say, "Oh well, you know they're forty or fifty foot Lamberts of righteousness, and this person is seventy or eighty foot Lamberts of righteousness Here's a person that's a hundred or two hundred foot Lamberts of righteousness, and you know Isaiah was a good man i mean isaiah Isaiah was not a guy who who came to God because you know he did drugs and he robbed liquor stores and all that kind of stuff to support his habit. And finally he got down, completely down on his back, and there was only one place to look, and that was up. That is not his testimony. This was a good man. This was a prophet of God. This was a man who gave good, godly advice to the king. It would be very tempting to be self-righteous. I don't know what his rating was. 300 foot lamber. But in the direct sunlight of the holiness of God, his righteousness was as filthy rags. And as our projector contractor says, are you kidding? And so he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. We think we're good people until we get a true vision of the holiness of God. But when we see his ultimate righteousness and his absolute moral purity, we realize that we're sinners, and we're undone, we're ruined. And finally this morning, if you ever begin to grasp the holiness of God, you will realize that your only hope, your only hope is in the grace of God through Christ's death on the cross. What happened to Isaiah in this vision? We read that, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, two things about this. First of all, his lips were really just representative of his whole body, of his whole self. So when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he says, I'm a sinner. And I live among a sinful people. And this burning coal from the altar uh, reminds us that it was only by a sacrifice, a substitution, a substitutionary atonement that our sins could be forgiven. And so what Isaiah is not able to do, God does. And, And this seraphim brings a coal from the altar, touches his lips, And he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. But if you go further in the book of Isaiah, you'll see that Isaiah looked much further into the future. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he saw that this sacrifice by which our sins could be forgiven and atoned for was not the sacrifice of lambs or Bulls or goats, but it was the sacrifice of the only Son of God. And so we read in Isaiah 55, same book, same prophet, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My friends, if you get a vision... If this morning through this scripture or through the other scriptures that I've listed, or if you're bold enough to check this book out of the library and you get a vision of the holiness of God and you come to the place where you say, I thought I was a pretty good person until I stood in the direct sunlight of the holiness of God. And then I realized, like Isaiah, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. There's no way I can save myself. God will do what you cannot do. And just as God provided an atonement in this vision for Isaiah, God has provided a sacrifice for you. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. And for whoever believes in him and trusts in him and looks to him, Because he paid the price for my sins and for your sins on the cross. There is salvation and there is forgiveness. What about you this morning? Are you at a crossroads in your life where you're feeling the pressure to either upgrade your vision of God or to downgrade your view of God to some level that you're comfortable with? That you're not challenged by. Then consider Isaiah's vision. If you ever get a glimpse of the majestic transcendence of God. And his absolute moral purity. You will never settle. For a downgrade no matter how it's packaged. You will want to worship and serve the living God. In the splendor of his holiness. Let me close with Psalm 96. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see your holiness. And if we understand what we mean when we pray that, we should tremble. Because You are set apart. You are far greater than anything we can imagine. And you are completely righteous and holy and perfect and pure. But Father, once we've had a vision of your righteousness and once we've been redeemed by your grace, we'll never be satisfied with anything less. It would be like far worse than downgrading from some modern television with all of the features to something from 30 years ago. Father, help us not to to make that mistake. What we need is not a downgrade. What we need is not to downsize you. What we need is to upgrade you and lift you up. And to worship you in the splendor of your holiness. Help us we pray. In Jesus name.